mind is here, it tends to think about there. Then when... Why don't we all cough, sneeze, in unison, get it over with? (laughs) Blow your nose, whatever, all at once. I'm a very sensitive person when I speak. I like silence. Very delicate. But no sooner does there... We get to there, and then uh, we start searching for another one. And so we've been trying to keep your attention on now for the whole retreat, as you know, uh, encouraging you to notice when you get lost in the past, encouraging you to, get, to notice when you get lost in the future, and even getting lost in the present. It's the same. It's all lost. And typically, when it gets close to going home, we think about home so we're not here. But now it's legitimate to think about home because that's what we're going to be talking about. Um, Sometimes it's called an integration talk. Um, The challenge being to integrate the practice into the rest of our life. Uh, I've never been too comfortable with that term because it implies that this practice and the rest of our life are different. Whereas to me, the correct teaching is that everything is life. And it's possible to be awake wherever you are at any time. The immense value of this form that's been invented thousands of years ago to sit quietly together and walk quietly together uh, for extended period of time, I think probably most or all of you uh, know that it has immense value. But if we attach to it as being it, then we create another problem and another Uh, way of suffering, the gap between this, which is really the true Dharma, and then that noisy, dirty world out there, which prevents us from being uh, pursuing our path. We create a a split that we then try to bridge. But what if we never created the split in the first place? We understood that finally, in a very profound way, all there is is life, always and ever. This is a stage set, IMS. It's a wonderful one. And we've all played our roles beautifully, I think. But it is a stage set. We're still just people. We've come here. We've honored certain conventions and rules. Uh, Hopefully these conditions have contributed to a deepening, a deepening ability to calm down, to get clear, to look more deeply into ourselves. And we've been talking a lot about intimacy all week. Intimacy of practice. Uh, that capacity to not separate ourselves from our experience, but to be in immediate and direct contact with our experience as much as possible, and learning about all the ways in which we avoid the rawness of the present moment, the actual naked, wild, raw present moment for ideas about what's happening. We, We cook it in concepts, and we live much of our life in notions, thinking that, that that's what it is. And the practice is to see that and very gently, but decisively, to start living a real life coming from our actual experience, no matter what that experience is. It's very easy to be in touch with our experience when we are feeling love or there's a beautiful sunset. 
But what about when we hate something, or we don't like being here, or we're bored, or feel irritated? That's, that's difficult for all of us. But from the point of view of practice, it's no less a place of practice. In fact, if we don't change our attitude so that we see that everything is practice, then that's a major obstacle. Uh, Shantideva, who was a very great Indian yogi, uh, said that the only, the main obstacle to spiritual development is to have no obstacles. So the point is not whether we have obstacles or not, but how we relate to them, finding a new way to regard what seem to be mistakes. If only this wasn't here, I could really be having a good life. If only this didn't happen, if only that person didn't treat me this way. But they do. And the the practice is to constantly come back to facts, to the way, the actuality, the way it actually is, and to be able to tell the difference between just the way it is and our longing to have things be an ideal way over and over and over, setting up dreams and hopes, dipping into a past, rather than the simplicity of direct and intimate experience of just what our actual life is. So, as you know, we've been going over that quite a bit for the past week, and when we left off, in addition to the uh, direct practice of attention, if you recall, what was suggested that the contemplation of death is very helpful. And I'm sorry we don't have more time or we could uh, go more deeply into that, but some of that is pretty obvious to all of us. If you really understand, not simply in your mind, not, not simply thinking understanding, but the actual truth that each and every one of us will die without exception. It's inevitable and inescapable. We don't know when, we don't know how, we don't know where, but each one of us will die. No one has ever gotten out of this alive that we know of. And there are dramatically more people who have already died than are alive right now. (laughs) And probably it's safe to say in about a hundred years or perhaps even less, who knows, not one person who's on this planet will be around. It will be a totally new cast of characters, totally new set of people who, you know, have adolescence and pimples and braces and over and over, the same thing. But, but no one who's here now will be around. We'll all be gone. And there are different ways of uh, getting the implications of that, for the significance of that, to sink in so that it's not just an idea Uh, but it's vivid. And the point being that the degree to which we can let that in enables us to see how precious life is. And as we see that, as we realize the people that we love won't be around forever, we won't be around forever. Whatever it is that we love will not be around forever. Life can become tremendously precious, seeing how interrelated we are. If you recall, we began that a little bit. Uh, everything becomes significant, nothing's trivial. And so that kind of change in attitude tremendously reinforces this direct perception of uh, just straight vipassana, 
where we're encouraged over and over and over again, as you have been, uh, to turn to what is happening right now, to not separate yourself from it into some, with, by some notion, some thinking. And so if the, uh, the preciousness of our life uh, becomes more apparent, it's really to enhance life so that we actually live, really live. And that enables us more to turn to what's happening now because that's all we have. At any rate, the reason I don't feel we need a term like integration is that these same principles, everything that we've been encouraging you to do, and the heart of it is so simple. Not easy, but it's simple. It's to be here now. Just to open to what is actually happening right now. To be sensitive to what's happening now. And that suggestion is no less valid when we wind up back in New York or Boston, wherever you are, on an airplane or uh, in a factory or teaching somewhere or uh, parenting somewhere. It's always going to be that's it. That's where we are. We, there's no escape from that. And the instructions don't change. Mindfulness is just mindfulness. We learn how to do it in whatever posture we're in. We learn how to do it in whatever place we're in. We learn how to do it whatever time it is. And so, in a nutshell, uh, a number of you have sent notes about how long should we sit when we get home. And I, I would like to go through some of the I guess the technology of it, there's really not much. But that question has come up. I've gotten a, a number of notes about that. Some of you are newer to the practice. Um, it's very helpful to sit every day, to, to develop some rhythm, uh, so that day in and day out, uh, you find some time to be with yourself. You find some time to sit silently with yourself. Um, beginning to see that that's not really a luxury. Sometimes we feel that that's a, a luxury and it's the first thing to go. Then again, you can't see that, it, that it's a necessity, perhaps one of the most important things you can do in the day, perhaps the most important thing you can do in the day, until you really see that. No, no amount of sermonizing is going to uh, convince you. Um, because if you don't spend at least some time with yourself silently, make, make that as, as normal a part of your life as possible. So many things pile up and build up and then uh, the actions that come out of a cloudy mind, the actions that come out of a confused mind or a mind that hasn't resolved certain things or that is nervous or that is feeling weighed down by something, that's we put our signature on everything we do. That's what affects the people in our life, the decisions that we make, and so forth. So it, finally, it's hardly selfish. It's the greatest gift you can give to the, it's the greatest social gift you can give to the world. As we move a little bit closer to being sane, kind, sensitive, use our, ingrain, our inborn wisdom, uh, that's what we give to everyone who's in our life. And uh, it seems to be necessary for all of us to take at least some time out during the day to drop all of our responsibilities, to simplify life so dramatically that we're not in relationship, we're not talking, we're not eating, we're not reading, we're not writing, we're not planning, etc., etc., and just to sit very, very simply 
with ourselves, to experience our breathing, to notice what the body feels like, to notice uh, the state of our, what moods seem to be dominant. And some days there isn't much time. We all have busy lives. So it may be less than in other days. So I would encourage you to begin to make this a natural thing in your life. It's certainly not less important than brushing and flossing, which you do every day, right? So it's the same, you know, it's a different realm that has to be cleaned out. But it's the same issue. If you don't brush and floss, you have big trouble, right? With your teeth. Well, it's the same with your mind. It's not really different, just a more subtle object. How long should you sit? I haven't the faintest idea. <laughs> I know that there are approaches where 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes at night, or, oh, it's got to be an hour at least every day in the morning and an hour at night. I don't know where these numbers come from. Maybe they're just a device to get you to at least do something. And we're, sometimes it's easier if we're given a definite assignment. You do this 20 minutes. We get a watch or some incense, and then we do it. <laughs> but to me, it's, uh, aside from being an insult to our intelligence, it's not appropriate uh, because each one of us is very different. And for one person, especially I'm speaking to those of you who are rather new, and there are 30 of you who are fairly new, at least some of you are of those 30 are fairly new and even completely new to this practice. For one person, uh, 20 minutes is an eternity. And I would suggest go a little bit beyond what you think your limit is. So if you feel that 20 minutes is, then go to 25 minutes. Now you might say, well, what is he talking about? We've been sitting for an hour here. Yeah, but when you get home, you won't have us with you. You won't have us, you know, the gendarmes up here. <laughs> in fact, what you'll have is you'll hear in the living room, it's good morning, America, and, you know, uh, and uh, all kinds of sounds in the street and all kinds of things that'll pull you away. And that you may find that uh, there's a strong urge or that to, to sit not as long. I would go find what your limit is and let it grow naturally. Certainly, it's helpful to sit longer. It takes a while for the mind to calm down. But uh, if you go at your own pace and are honest with yourself, uh, take, take on a little bit more than you think you can handle, but not so much more, that it becomes uh, odious, arduous, tedious. And then it's amazing how we stop doing things that feel that way. Suddenly, months go by and, oh yeah, sitting, what's that? Well, I had a, you mean that, oh yeah, that retreat at IMS about 10 years ago, that was wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, I have a notebook full of my insights on that. That was a great day. What, wonderful nine days. Yeah. What were the name of those people who were kind of leaving? <laughs> Nariana or something. I, I've been waiting for months to use that one. <laughs> Years. 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 Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's simple in this sense. Uh, you wake up, you wash up, you fold your legs, or sit in a chair or whatever, you follow your breath, you pay attention to the breathing, you calm down, or if you feel calm and steady, then open the field of attention so that you're aware of the... Of, 
the fullness of yourself, not just the breath, but the breathing and the mood you're in and so forth. Uh, and whatever the time limit is, at some point, then you unfold your legs and then you just come at life fully. You just come at everything fully. And you take each thing in turn 100%. And nothing is uh, unimportant. Nothing is trivial or routine. Uh, no person is, no activity is. And it's not a matter of straining. It's a matter of this um, sensitivity and respect. The whole practice is, again, it's infinite respect. It's learning how to respect even our fear, even our anger. And every activity, it's all our life. Whatever we encounter is our life. And so it's the best, it's the best way to live. And so we go through the day, taking each situation, giving it our best, often falling down, getting distracted, separating ourselves from experience in all the ways that you've heard about and now know firsthand. And as soon as we notice that we've drifted, we're off track, we enter the stream of Dharma again, which is to return to our direct experience. I think that attitude is more important than any of the techniques. I'll give you a few in regard to how to use the breath in daily life in a moment. But, uh, you know, one of the things that's so lacking and has been lacking for a while in, in the modern world is respect. Respect is starting to uh, deteriorate. There's no respect in the family. We don't respect politicians. No one trusts anyone. Respect is breaking down wherever you look. It's even in spiritual circles. Sometimes there are all kinds of egalitarian names and so forth, but uh, it's become coarse and harsh and just instrumental. Everything's a means to an end. And who do you think is suffering because of that? All of us, as we lose respect. Well, maybe there are a lot of things that have not been worthy of respect. But certainly life is. And how do we regain and rebuild ourselves, if not by beginning with our own life, and to start to see little by little that there are things that are worthy of respect? Beginning with ourself. And then all the small things that make up our day, because most of our life is not dramatic, dramatic, or traumatic. <laughs> it's the ordinary things that uh, just make, together make up and constitute most of what we call living. Let me um, read you something, which I, there's a, uh, a Japanese nun named uh, Shundo Ayama. And it's a little book called Zen Seeds. If you can find it, it's well worth reading. It's one of the finest treatments of uh, this attitude of respect for everything. We talked about it a little the other evening in regard to respect for things like water, air, even your cushion, because it, everything helps us in life. But anyway, this book is a, uh, a gem. Uh, this is a very sensitive uh, person. She. Uh, is a very well-known Zen master, uh, Soto Nunnery, in Japan. And this is what she has to say. Uh, I'll let the story tell itself. It's, but take it as being more than what she's talking about, that if she's really talking about us, no matter what your job is. Officially, this is about work. But it's, it's certainly about all of our jobs, but it's more than that. It's a little section, and it's called Savor Each Moment in Life. The taxi driver was grumbling. This kind of work is pretty worthless, and I know it's all I'll ever do with my life. Quite, quite spontaneously, I retorted, 
your job is certainly not worthless. You become both arms and legs for people, carrying them where they need to go. People like myself could never manage without you. An understanding driver always goes as close to the speed limit as he can to get me to my destination on time. Even though I'm forever going about here and there, I never bothered to take an umbrella with me. The driver kindly shields me from the rain. That's probably in Japan, not around here. (laughs) The driver kindly shields me from the rain, taking me right up to the place I want to go. He also helps me to carry my bags, because I always walk about with as much hand luggage as a person leaving on a trip. And whereas I have no natural sense of direction, the taxi driver will find his way through winding lanes, asking directions wherever, where necessary. Taxi drivers safely deliver home those who missed the last train because their meeting was delayed or because they were out drinking too late. When a person has to get to a hospital suddenly, a taxi can be a lifesaver. When no one else can take you where you have to go because everyone is on holiday or it's the dead of night, one can always rely on the taxi driver. Don't you agree that this is wonderful work after all? As I had him taking me quite a distance, I continued. (laughs) And as you're still a captive audience, I'm going to continue. (laughs) I seriously believe that there is not one worthless thing, not a single useless thing in the whole world. The other day, I gave a lecture at a company that manufactures watches and calculators. When the lecture was over, the company president took me on a tour of the factory, and I was really impressed. I watched parts being assembled that can be seen only with a microscope and on a conveyor belt at that. If one of those parts being poked around by the point of a needle is out of place to the tiniest extent, the entire watch, the entire calculator, will be out of sync or could stop altogether. I felt very keenly how each single part shouldered the work of the entire piece. And I thought, that one household, or to widen the image a bit, a society or country, or to widen the image even further, heaven and earth, and even the universe itself, function in the very same way as one of these watches. Most people see things in terms of superior and inferior, higher and lower values. But seen from the standpoint of truth, there are neither superior nor inferior, neither higher nor lower values. No matter where you begin, the entire family, the entire society, the entire universe is fully in place at every single point. The perspective alters quite dramatically if we are alert enough to see the difference between the biased view that our work is merely one trifling mechanical part and the attitude that whatever we do It shoulders all heaven and earth, all past, present, and future. When Shakyamuni Buddha was born, he pointed to heaven with one hand and to earth with another. You might have heard that he said, I alone am honored in heaven and on earth. He meant that all sentient beings have value. No matter what person, what kind of work, what flower or bird, they have all received the great gift of life from heaven and earth, whether they realize it or not. I suppose it was presumptuous to talk about these things to the driver for so long, but he listened seriously. I was glad to hear him say, well, what you've said gives me hope. I'll try and do my best.
Now let's get back to nuts and bolts. How do you use the breath to help stay awake? We've been talking about intimacy with our experience, with, with life itself. And we've been talking about the breath a lot, keeping the breath in mind. It should be pretty obvious now uh, its, it, its role in the sitting practice, when we use the breath either exclusively or when we use it to help us pay attention to what is happening in consciousness that is other than breath. But what about daily life? And I don't mean daily life at IMS where it's so simplified. We have nothing to do but your little yogi job and to pay attention all day. Now we go home and things start happening fast and furiously, complicated. You know, we all know what's next. How can we use the breath to help us stay awake, to maintain this intimate contact with our experience? Let me give you a few examples, and then by extension, you'll, you'll be able to, to bring it into your own life. Sometimes it's just very simple. You're waiting for an elevator, and you don't need very much attention. There's not much being asked of you. While you're waiting, just be with the breath. Just a, a, a tiny amount of attention is needed to notice when the elevator arrives, you know, and that you get on. But mainly you're standing and you're with the conscious breathing. Perhaps it's only 30 seconds, 45 seconds. It's a bit like waiting online here. But as you do it more and more, as you practice more and more, the breath becomes more vivid. It becomes more of an interesting object. And your capacity to, be, to soothe yourself, to calm down, to refresh yourself, to rejuvenate yourself uh, becomes easier. Sometimes all it takes is three or four breaths and suddenly you're standing on planet Earth once again and, and you know that you're on planet Earth. And then the elevator comes and so forth and then uh, life unfolds. Sometimes you're paying, you're in a, in a store and you're paying the clerk. These days that usually means you give the, your credit card and they start writing up stuff and processing it while you're waiting, just being with your breath. Maybe it's just, again, 15 seconds, 20 seconds. It helps you uh, anchor yourself in this moment to be alive even to that, to the clerk, to the fact that you're standing there, to the uh, store itself, whatever is, is happening. Okay, there's so many situations that are like that all day long. Those are closer to the sitting situation where there's not much being asked of us and so that we can really uh, concentrate on the breathing and rejuvenate ourselves a bit. I use public transportation a lot in Cambridge when I we call it the T there. And I use it almost every day. And when I'm on the T, uh, there are all kinds of things you can do. One is to send metta, loving kindness, to just the people on the T, and we'll be doing that meditation in a few moments. Another is to just sit and be with your breathing. You have to have a corner of the mind awake so you get, up, get off at the right spot, right stop. But uh, sometimes I have to ride for half an hour, 45 minutes, and instead of reading a book or uh, checking everyone out or just getting lost in my, the future and the past and worrying and planning and all that, I'll just sit and have a, a wonderful little meditation right on the tee. Don't have to fold my legs, don't have to have a special outfit, don't have to look a certain way. And then you get off the tee and you're a little bit more alive, a little bit more ready to then enter whatever it is you're entering into uh, with a chance of being intelligent and clear and kind and sensitive and, and fully awake in that next experience. One that many of you have heard about from the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, if you drive, 
of course, you come up against red light, green light. Green light is good, red light is bad. (laughs) Just as we have good sittings and bad sittings, we have bad colors and good colors. And uh, if you already have uh, a bit of irritability or impatience from something that's happened, uh, you're there and you know what the feeling is like. Uh, there's even tension. As you start to pay, t- to pay attention, you'll notice you have tension or an impatience uh, expressed in all kinds of ways. Uh, if when the light changes, the car ahead of you doesn't take off instantly, you just hate them and start cursing them. And, okay. Well, what if, and this is a, a suggestion, in certain monasteries, uh, the temple bell is uh, called the bell of awakening. It's a reminder to, to be mindful. So let's say you're doing things at monasteries and the bell is rung. It's basically an invitation to come back to yourself. If you're off somewhere, spaced out here or there, caught up in the past or the future, you hear that bell. And with training, as you're reminded, the bell just alerts you to come back to your breathing or just to come back to the moment. And so many things can become bells, wake-up bells. So that red light now, rather than being an enemy, an obstacle to your speedily getting to some place that you don't want to get to anyway, <laughs> now becomes a friend, becomes uh, a, a, a temple bell and an invitation to, to sit and practice. Oh, wonderful, another red light. <laughs> I can just now sit and be with my breathing. Ah, oh, so nice. And then, then you have, may have the opposite problem, where you just want to stay there forever. <laughs> But the people in back of you have not learned about Buddhist meditation, and they will make sure that you wake up. Uh, Then there are all these in-between areas, and there's certain confusion that comes up for people who use the breath to help stay awake throughout the day. Uh, A typical question would be something like this. Well, um, you've suggested... Uh, using, being in touch with the breathing can even help listen when you're, when you're, let's say, with somebody and they're talking. You can. I use it in the interviews to help stay fresh. It's kind of in the background. It's kind of a good friend helping me stay in the moment, helping to cut down unnecessary thinking or to not get uh, caught in, let's say, the echo of the person who's just left the interview. As you know, we see a lot of people here. And how to give each person to start right a zero with each person to really listen. And the breath is, has been, for many years, quite a help for me. So anyway, often the question will be, yes, but when I do it, then I'm, uh, I, I like the breath and I like conscious breathing, but then I find that I'm caught up in the breathing and I'm not fully listening to the person. Here, what's important is, uh, is wisdom. Uh, each situation has wisdom built into it. And if we'll only pay attention, it tells us what the best way to practice is. If somebody is speaking to you, the primary focus of attention is that person. The breath then recedes into the background. It's kind of just, it's alongside of you or in the background or uh, its help uh, is, is in such a way that it doesn't get between you and the other person, but rather helps you listen to the other person. Whereas when you're with a red light or you're waiting for an elevator or waiting for a train or an airplane and there's nothing much to do, then you can feature the breath a lot more because nothing else is asked of you. And your situation will keep changing throughout the day. If your children approach you and you're now caught up in your breathing rather than something else and thinking that it's holy uh, and not paying attention to your children, 
That, of course, is a misunderstanding of practice. But it's all in the situation. The intelligence is a kind of circumstantial wisdom. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, uh, the suggestions are usually there as to how to best practice in that situation. And in regard to the breath, very often it's just an adjunct in daily life. And at other times, you're in a long line in the supermarket, you can give much more attention to it. So more and more start weaving that into your life and see if it helps you stay awake. Remember, the key thing is the wakefulness. Some of you may not be attracted to the breathing so much, to do it like as much as you can in daily life. That's fine. The essence of the practice is not the breathing. The essence of the practice is the awareness. Are we awake to what is happening to us right now? And conscious breathing is one wonderful way to help that happen. It's not the only way, but it's a wonderful way. It's the way that's helped me the most. Okay, is that clear? Um, Of course, a big one is relationship. And I feel that everything that's been said now throughout uh, the entire retreat, some of it specifically about relationship, some of it not, a, I mean personal relationship, some of it not about personal relationship, but let's say looking at a tree or listening to a sound, uh, is equally relevant to relationship. Finally, the principle is the same. Can we really hear what people are saying to us? Can we learn how to really listen? In order to do that, you have to be quiet inside. In order to learn how to listen to, the, to people, you have to see how you're not listening. It's not just a matter of sort of forcing yourself to pay attention. Some people try to do it that way. Yeah, that's right, I don't listen to people enough. My, my wife talks and I'm... Uh, somewhere else. I'm going I'm to pay attention now. And it becomes a kind of grim, willful activity, which soon wears away, because it's, uh, not, in- it's uh, not enjoyable to live that way. Rather, it's much more delicate and sensitive. So, of course, if somebody is speaking, enter it with the intention of listening to them. But as you learn how to listen, you'll see that one of the most important ways of learning how to listen is to become an expert on inattention. It's not so much forcing yourself to be attentive as noticing somebody speaking and you're away. You can be in another country while they're speaking. Or you're rehearsing what you're going to say after they finish. And so you're kind of hearing what they're saying, but you're also kind of not. And if they're doing that, then the conversations become so wooden. Endlessly, we, we spend so much time rehearsing when I, you're going to meet somebody and you rehearse all the things you're going to say, invariably we don't even say them. You know, something else is what happens. Can we, learn, can we learn to trust the moment? Can we learn to trust ourselves? Can we try and learn to trust the, uh, that if we are intimate and fresh with each moment, we'll know what to say? And if that we really listen, then, we, then what we say will even be more relevant, more compassionate, more appropriate. So, it's the same principle. Begin to notice how you separate yourself from your experience. In this case, the experience is of the other, of the other person in your life. Let me uh, finish with um, uh, a suggestion in terms of the precepts, which some of you took last night. 
uh, as was uh, made clear last night, the precepts are guidelines. And uh, without mindfulness, the precepts would be worthless. So they're really uh, helping us to stay mindful. They're kind of signposts, Boston, 23 miles. Uh, as we reflect on them, and I think it's important to reflect on them as often as you like, from time to time. When you break a precept, you don't have to beat yourself up, but perhaps uh, spend some time reflecting on it. Begin to see what the outcome was of a broken precept, a lying or uh, whatever it is. Uh, if you see that it brings suffering, that is the, the violation of the precepts brings suffering, then your actions will come out of wisdom and they're much stronger. Whereas if you're behaving following the precepts because we said so, or the Buddha said so, or God said so, or your minister or rabbi or priest said so, we all know that doesn't have very much potency. You might try to be a good boy and a good girl, and I'm not saying that's totally useless. It's helpful. But in this approach, we honor the precepts because they're wise. We begin to see that lying doesn't work. The misuse of sexual energy doesn't work. It brings suffering. And so we re refrain, restrain ourselves from those actions because they're foolish and they uh, destroy the quality of life. Put more positively, the precepts are not some kind of Puritan uh, attempt to make you guilt-ridden uh, and to just uh, be in a straitjacket of just being good. They're actually designed to help us have a happy life. Uh, people have learned for thousands of years how if there is ethical uh, sensitivity and development, then the quality of life is improved. Let me give you an example of how to work with the breath, for example. Sometimes, wrong speech, let's say lying or misrepresenting something, there's just one or two breaths between you and it. As Narayan mentioned, sometimes it's just out there. Suddenly, who said that? I did. You know, where did it come from? It came from you, you know, from your consciousness. And, so, and now, when we take the precepts, what they do is they act as a bit of a reminder, much like a bell, that this kind of action leads to suffering. We see the cause and effect so that we, we stop doing it out of wisdom, not out of just obedience. And let's say uh, someone is saying something and you hear your mind about to distort the truth by saying something that's really off, whether it's a lie or a half-truth or whatever. Uh, you really hear it about to come out. Sometimes you just, if you hang on to your breath for like for dear life, just one or two breaths, you just don't say it. And if you don't, it's out there. It's, it's that delicate. That's what I mean. You're hanging in there by a breath or two. And if you can um, be with the breathing in that just uh, two or three breath moments, you can feel what's about to come out and let it go, uh, knowing full well that where it's going to lead to is not useful for either you or the other person.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.